Um, we have two readings today. Uh, the first is Psalm 126, and the second is 2 Corinthians 9. Okay, so starting in Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths are filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Okay. And 2 Corinthians 9. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you in Achaia were given, were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. 
Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Amy. Why don't we pray as we prepare to hear God's word again. Father God, we ask you to make this word fresh in our hearts. May it be living to us and may it live in us and may it accomplish everything that you will and purpose it to. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 It's great to be with you. I'm actually going to begin just by giving you a a fact. I I don't normally do this. this. What I'm about to say has got no relevance at all for everything else I'm about to say. But somebody told me this. My friend Pete Hopkins told me this yesterday. I was so excited I just had to pass it on, and and I could think of no one better than you to be a recipient of it. Did you know, I need to say this correctly, but that every, every single odd number has an E in it? I'll leave you with that. (laughs) I've probably lost most of you for the rest of the sermon, but you can check it. Once you get to 13, you know it's it's a done deal, right? Because everything else after that... Good, isn't it? Anyway, check it. Yeah, yeah. You can't get that many places, Jeff, that kind of stuff. One of the great uh, joys for me of, of growing up in a church school, particularly, and particularly as the son of a vicar, uh, was the annual harvest festival. Now, for those who've been a part of, of maybe church schools or um, you've been in a, particularly an Anglican church, not like exclusively necessarily, but you probably have uh, some memories of your own of of what the Harvest Festival might entail. If you haven't, I've got a picture on the screen for those who've never been part of. So what you'll see there is you've got sort of a church. You've got in the sort of back corner, I don't think it's the vicar. Uh, It's it's something with a a sort of large and round head. I think it's, I don't know, is it a scarecrow? And, uh, and you've got lots of gifts and lots of food. And it's a sort of representation, annual representation of the fruitfulness of life, the fruitfulness. And it's an opportunity annually to really do two things. Firstly, to, to look backward in gratitude at all that God has done in providing food for our tables and so on and so forth. But also in doing that, to give generously. And so I remember... Uh, some of my memories of this have been uh, blotted out, actually, because I have a distinct sort of uh, idea that once my dad played a guitar and he had a rainbow strap, and so there are some parts of this that I can't access in my memory, Um, but uh, I do remember sort of going forward to the altar annually with sort of cans and tins and giving those. So that's what Harvest Festival is all about. And I suppose you could say it harks back to a time a, not so, uh, a time not so distant in our past where we were probably mo- more closely connected to the source of our food than we now are. You know, these days, you, you know, people used to ask this kind of question, what time of year do strawberries come? Irrelevant. All times of year. Uh, from where can I get an avocado? You know, the answer to that used to be somewhere, some far-flung place, and now it's, you know, Sainsbury's down the road or Tesco or Aldi or wherever. So it harks back to that place when you know, we ate things in their season and those sorts of things, and, and where our lives were more dependent on sort of vagaries of a harvest and, and yield and those sorts of things, where we couldn't just import food from far away. 
The harvest mattered. And what was yielded was important. And so the Harvest Festival found its place. And and as such, in rural communities, it's still a very important thing. Now, we don't do a Harvest Festival here exactly. Uh, But when I was reading Psalm 126 this week, and and even thinking about it in connection with uh, this morning, I was reminded of just how central the themes of harvest are in in that song, in that psalm. We have this vision of sowing in tears and reaping with shouts of joy. The, those who go out bearing seed for sowing, coming back, carrying their sheaves. It's a harvest psalm. And it connected so closely with me personally because the theme of harvest is one I've been thinking about and praying for. In fact, I've been praying for Trinity even while Amy and I were on sabbatical. Praying a text from 2 Corinthians 9. And so today what I guess I want to do is a Trinity version of Harvest Sunday. I want us to look back in gratitude and to look forward in hope. So that's what we're going to do for the next few minutes. And it's of significance to us as we consider these two pieces of scripture we've had read to us already. That when the Apostle Paul, who is the the author of... Uh, of, of 2 Corinthians, when he comes to this argument in chapter 9 about how the church in Corinth should give, that what he uses uh, uh, to motivate them and inspire them to give generously, what he does is, is a look back. He begins a look back. And his aim is motivation. His aim is inspiration. He wants to get the church in Corinth, if you like, to pull their finger out. So what he's doing is he's gathering a financial gift, if you like, a harvest collection. And his purpose is that uh, he'd go around and he'd literally do a whip round. He'd go around the different churches that he'd planted and he'd gather this financial collection. And they would give it, those churches, these Gentile churches, these non-Jewish churches would give that money to the church in Judea. The Jewish church in Jerusalem. Because they'd been struggling. They were, lot, they were in poverty, and so Paul says, look, this would be a, a powerful sign if we were able to do this. It, would, it had a practical purpose then. It was about practical provision. Those that have can give to those that don't have. But there was also a, a spiritual reason for it. We might say a theological reason for this gift as well. It was to be a, an outward sign of an inner reality. It was to be a physical manifestation of a spiritual truth. It was to model unity. See, Paul's gospel, his proclamation throughout uh, the whole of the world as he traveled was that the Jews and the Gentiles, because of what Jesus had done, these disparate groups, these sort of disparate racial communities could come together in one family. You know, in Galatians 3.28, he says this, isn't he? There's now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Christ. God's family are joined together from disparate groups which, apart from Christ, would have no reason to be together. That's Paul's gospel. Jesus did that. And the way he wants to model it is financial generosity. That's going to be the powerful sign of this visible transformation. 
Now, interestingly, in doing so, he's doing the opposite of what he ever did for himself. Paul always said, look, don't give to me. I'll support myself. But I want you to give to these impoverished churches. And to inspire and to motivate. That's where I was going. To inspire and to motivate them. What he does is to say, look at these other guys. Take a look back. Let's look back together at the church in Macedonia. We read this in chapter 8, actually, just before our text. During a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They voluntarily gave, he goes on to say. So what we have in Macedonia is a community who are functioning under a different economy. And it is the economy, not of the world, but the economy of the kingdom. See, the economy of the world at this time and the economy of the world in our age says, if you have, you are free to give. And give in in sort of correlation with what you have. But what we read about from the church in Macedonia, what Paul bragging about them, boasting about them, he says, look, these guys are running a different economy. They're giving out what they don't have. When they consider their generosity, their posture toward other people, the posture toward the church, they're not assessing the size of their bank account. They're assessing the state of their hearts. Paul looks back to the church in Macedonia, but he also looks back to the most generous act of giving of all. Read this. For you know... The generous act of our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. It's the gospel, folks. Right at the heart of this plea for money is Jesus. And the gospel, this beautiful truth that God gave his best And exchanged it for our worst. So that we and our worst might have his best. Have you ever felt, have you ever been in a moment of utter poverty? You know, there's that story, isn't there, in the Bible, the the prodigal son. It's actually the prodigal father, the reckless father who goes out to meet his son. And there's the moment where the son's mindset is transformed or we think that may be what's going on. And he's at the lowest of the lowest of the low. He's in a point of profound poverty. And that's where God meets him. It's the beginning of his turning. It's so often the way for for every one of us that, that, that it's in our poverty that God transforms us. Why? Why is that? That is because that is the shape of the gospel. God does not need strong people. He is fully aware there are none. There are none. And if you thought that before the the last 18 months presented themselves to you, I hope that you have been removed, disabused of that notion, of that myth. Paul says, as Isaiah says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. You know, if God was looking for an army of of sort of strong people, he could have just looked around him. Maybe he could have, I don't know, maybe he could have got the angels to do something. 
But he calls the unrighteous. He calls sinners. That's the gospel. It's a generous act. The gospel is just. God deals with sin justly on the cross. He makes a payment, an atonement for sin. In the lead up to, I know none of you can imagine that we are thinking of Easter already. We are growing up. We are thinking about it. We are going to look at the cross in an extended way. And because I've said that, we now have to do it. There's loads of ways to look at the cross, but a penalty is paid. That's one of the ways. That's one of the ways to understand the cross. The penalty is paid for our sin so that we can get off scot-free. But it's just, the cross is just. But it's generous. It's generous. You know, so many people think God is a miser. Paul didn't. Paul's gospel is a generous gospel. You know, Jesus is merciful and he is generous. And his desire for you is that you might become rich. <laughs> and you've heard that before in church somewhere else. But that's not what I mean. I'm not talking about your pockets. I'm talking about your heart. I'm talking about your mind. I'm talking about your bodies. I'm talking, dare I say it, about your souls. Yeah. Hallelujah, Jeff. What's Paul trying to do? He's trying to locate their behavior, not just in what the others have done, but in what he's done. He's trying to shape their, the economy, the ecology of their hearts around the ecology and the economy of heaven. He wants to really inspire them. This is the deepest motivation for generosity, isn't it? A grateful heart. But you know, what I love about Paul is he's not beyond an insurance policy. And so in chapter 9, we find him having done his sort of inspiration with Macedonia, having done his sort of theology, he just appeals to naked self-interest. This is what we read there. The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay, if you need another reason, you'll be better off if you give. Ain't that the truth? You can't outgive God. That's right, Ros. Or, or in the words of the New Radicals, which if you grew up in the 90s as I did, you know this song, you only get what you give. It's not strictly true. You don't only get what you give, but as you give, so you receive. That's the way the kingdom seems to operate. Now, as I said, this theology, this understanding of God is abused in so many places. And so, blessing that we receive is equated with financial prosperity. That is, I, I, I harped on about this in the 930. I, I will restrict and restrain myself this morning. But it is a perversion, an offense to the gospel of Jesus to suggest that that is true. And yet, we'd be mad to deny, wouldn't we? That there's not an unmistakable link between giving and blessing in Scripture. There is. It's clear. Think of Jesus' words. It's more blessed to give than to receive. But here's the point. The blessing of giving is giving. Because when you give, you've ceased to take possession of whatever it is you've offered. We have this misunderstanding, particularly in the West. We think that we own possessions. 
If we think like that, then the reality is, reality is that our possessions own us. What happens is when we give, whether it be money, whether it be time, whether it be love, we're blessed. That thing ceases to possess us, and we can offer it, and we actually in its place receive a blessing. And the shape of that blessing depends on God. It says, Paul says, and God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share it abundantly and every good work. Just notice a couple of things. Firstly, God is able to provide us with every blessing in abundance. That word in Greek there, the word for every, it actually means every. It just means what it says. It's every, every blessing. In other words, what, what the Paul is saying is there is no sphere of life uh, that's outside of God's ability to provide for. God isn't beyond physical blessing. He's not beyond financial blessing. He's not beyond material blessing. God God isn't outside of the ability to give relational blessing or so on and so forth. There's no sphere that he can't touch. And he gives abundantly so that we might share abundantly. In every good work. The purpose of his generosity is to create, what do they call it? A chain reaction, that's it. A chain reaction. Physicists talk about that. That's the purpose of generosity in the kingdom of God. It just begins to proliferate and all of a sudden it's out of control. Now the reverse is true. The reverse is true. We can have an explosion of generosity that comes from a willingness to give. We can also implode, shrink into ourselves if we won't give, if we won't love, if we won't serve. We shrink, we become less than human. And so I think the wisdom of Jesus, the wisdom of Paul, would suggest that if we want something, the the most effective way to begin to create conditions in which we can receive that thing is actually to give it. Take an example. Let's say peace. (laughs) Who can do with just a bit more peace? If I I ask you, would you like 10 grand more? I don't know. Whatever's in your bank, do you want 10 grand more? There's no one here. It's because, nah, I think I'm all right. I say the same with peace. Would you like 10,000 pounds worth of peace? Of course. Of course you would. What about if we flipped on its head and said, okay, who can I give some peace to? Who can I share that gift? I have some peace. I don't have as much peace as I'd like. I'd like some more, but I have some. Maybe I could share some of that. I'd love more love. I'd love a bit more. Amy? Just a touch. Just a massage, just the shoulders, neck, every so often. I'd love a bit more, but what about if I said, well, I'd love a bit more of that, but I have some, and I could give what I have. No problem, she's she's up for that. You know, in the church of Jesus Christ, in the world, one of the great gifts we have to offer is belonging. We really do see this as a family. We want everybody here. This is idealistic. We're idealists. If you've not figured that out by now, you will have to six Sundays. 
One of the great gifts in, in the church is belonging. We want this to be a family. But what about if rather than thinking, well, I've not been welcomed. I've, such and such just walked past me. Did, that pastor, called himself a pastor, he doesn't even remember my name. Been here three years. Most of it's been online. What about if we just said, look, who can I give belonging to today? Who can I welcome? If we said, you know, I'm not coming to church, I'm coming home. This is my house. We sit on one of those seats. Don't just sit on one. Own one. Own your seat. Own it now. Shuffle your bottom. It's yours. This is your house. So next time you come, welcome somebody as if it's your house. That would shift the culture of our church, wouldn't it? That kind of mindset could shift the culture of the city. What if we were walking down the streets with that attitude? We said, this is mine. I've paid counter-tax for a start. And we walked past schools and we said, that's mine. I'm invested in the destiny of those children, so I'm going to pray for them. And we had that kind of mindset about our city. How could that shift the culture of our city? It could happen. You know, revivals begin when a group of people take this simple stuff seriously. They begin to act on it. And that's what we've seen at Trinity. I don't even know where I am in my sermon, but I remember saying something about looking back at one stage. We've seen God's faithfulness. And five years in, we're in a moment where we have an opportunity to look back and to say, here we are. And, and, and it might look like we know what we're doing, but we don't. And five years ago, we knew even less. But God gathered people to join this thing I was talking uh, to Matt Proctor this week. Some of you know him. Matt Proctor had a job in Devon. I worked for a, a high-vis, in the accounts department of a high-vis product, clothing production company or something similar. God just said to him, Matt, I've got, a, I've got an assignment for you. I need you to be ready. So Matt said, well, okay, I feel God saying I'm going to give up my job. I'll, I'll give three months notice because that'll give God time to act. Three months came and went. He left his job. Nothing. Nothing. A whole year passed. The only things God had said is, when this comes along, you're going to trust the people. You're going to believe in the vision. You're going to trust them. And somebody who you know is going to be part of it. Don't ask me how he knew that. I don't understand how these people hear God in this way. But that's what he heard God say. He acted. He waited a whole year a young woman, Josie, came back to Barnstable where Matt lived and said, look, I'm going to be part of this church. Why don't you come and find out about it? Didn't know anything of what Matt had been saying. Matt got a train from Devon to London where we were living to join a prayer meeting in the evening. Nuts. Crazy guy. And he said nothing for about 90 minutes and we were wondering, Josie, who have you brought with you? <laughs> and at the end of it, he prayed. And I thought, if he comes with us, we might just be okay. Because we've got one person, at least, who knows how to pray. And then we moved in. We came here, and nine months later, we had our first Sunday service, didn't we? And some of you remember this, but Don came. You know Don, the prophet, the builder from Baseford, who showed up and said to me, God's going to do incredible things in this, but I'd never seen him in my life. I said, what? 
Who are you? Come in. So God's going to do incredible things in this place. I said, how do you know? He said, let's go for dinner. We went for dinner. And next week he told me a story. And I'll cut to the chase. We don't have the time to tell you the whole story. But God gave him a dream. Woke him up with a dream. The end of 2011. Bear in mind, this is 2017 when I saw him for the first time. And about a, uh, the dream was of an outpouring of the Spirit of God, and it had to do with this building. This building was derelict. So Don, about six months later, had another dream. He felt God was saying, come and pray outside that, that place. And for the next two and a half years, every Sunday, he did that. What are you going to do? <laughs> you show up, you hear that's going on. You think, maybe God, maybe God is real. That's what I thought. Because up to then, I'd been behaving as if I had to do it all. And God wasn't real. And that didn't stop just then, I'll tell you. But here we are. It pays to look back, doesn't it? You look back now into your life. Why are you here? I'm sure there's been ups and downs. Even recently, I'm sure there's been rough and there's been smooth. But your story is a story of God's faithfulness. Even if you can't locate that yet. And the reason you're here is because God is whispering to you, saying, I'm here, I love you. I have more for you. So let's look forward. Let's land. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. These are the words I felt God give me to pray over our church, to pray over you uh, in this season. So I'm praying this for you. But I think it also sketches a picture of where we as a community may be going in the years to come. And indeed, where this diocese, where the churches in this region may find God leading them. We will, I believe, see a harvest. Indeed, we're already seeing it. We're already seeing the shoots of harvest growing among us. Some of you are that harvest. We're standing on the shoulders of the prayers of generations before us, and here we are. And we're laying down prayers for people who will come long after us. We will see, I believe, a multiplication in the years to come. Maybe even a chain reaction. What has been sown in tears will be reaped with shouts of joy. For what? A further sowing a further harvest, not for hoarding, not for indulging, but for giving. I believe at Trinity, we're entering a new season of giving so that there may be a new harvest. Specifically, I want to encourage you, I want to prepare you to expect a multiplication of new worshiping communities over the next five years, even beginning this year, as leaders leave this place, as they step out of the safety of, relative safety, of incubation here to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom in partnership with other churches across this city and this region. I do believe that God is going to move us, change us from being a church family to a family of churches in the season to come. And this does center on leadership and raising up leaders. So we will continue to welcome, invest in, and send leaders from this place. And that will mean losing our best. Except losing in the kingdom isn't the right word, is it? Giving is the right word. We will be giving our best, and you'll be weeping and mourning along with me as they go. 
Expect, too, a greater movement of compassion among us than you are yet ready for. I will not be the only one crying in the time to come. We're going to invest. We are already investing. We will continue to invest in, in this space, but also in our community. We might see more and more compassion. This place becoming a home for people who haven't experienced the homecoming. It is the gospel. That's the kingdom. That's the dynamic of the kingdom of God. That's how it works. You're blessed when you give. As you give away, you receive more. In fact, Paul says this, you will be enriched in every way for your generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. In other words, more thanksgiving to God, more giving, more receiving, more thanksgiving, more giving, more receiving, more thanksgiving. You can see how it works. That's how it's going to work. What if we do stand on the brink of a harvest in our city? What if God has been, as Bishop Paul says, rebuilding in the ruins all this time? What if a great renewal is coming for the church and even for our nation? What if a great harvest is ahead? I tell you this, if God does what we sincerely hope and dream, he will. In us and in our city, we will never wonder whether we gave too much of ourselves to it. What I love about Psalm 126 is the promise that all the tears, all the hard work, the labor, the sweat, the prayers, and everything else, the disappointment, all of it counts. And all of it is brought into God's house and used for his purposes. And that means that every tear you have cried in this season, every bone that has been broken in your body, every virus particle that's invaded you or the life of somebody around you, every loss you've experienced, every grief you've journeyed through, that nothing of it, nothing of any other thing will be lost or wasted. Because as Jesus' followers, we look forward in hope to the great harvest at the end of the age when Christ comes again to gather his children from every corner of the world to live with him in the place where there is no longer any need for tears, for loss, for pain, grief, or sadness. On that day, we will be crying, but we will be crying, holy, holy, holy. 